Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, please hit that subscribe button, rate and review, and pass it on to your friends. Thanks. Well, welcome to the Stuff Up podcast, where we delve into different topics to learn more about ourselves and more about others. I am so excited. I say this all the time. I'm excited, but I really am to talk to you. So I've got David from the Graceful Atheist podcast with me. Let's talk about atheism. I had a friend who was like, ooh, you're really brave. And I was like, why? This is just a conversation. (laughs) I think it's enjoyable. You and I were talking about how it's kind of fun to talk about these kind of things. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for inviting me. I've listened to a bunch of your episodes and I really like the style and what you're doing. And I just personally believe in having good conversations. And it seems like that's what you're doing. Yes. And I've listened. I'm addicted to your podcast. Your episodes are so good. And you have a variety of people. You have Christians, you have people searching, you have atheists. I mean, you have a variety of people. So I love that because it's just so interesting to hear all the different perspectives. Yeah. If I could give you the 30 second elevator pitch of what it's about is Mm -hmm. that, you know, one of the primary themes is, is deconstruction, deconversion. So I have a lot of people on who had varieties of life altering faith is the way I like to say it, right? Like they lived it out. I'm not talking about you're just a college student who's asking questions, but somebody in their thirties or forties or fifties and and then subsequently come to a point where they are no longer able to believe. So those deconversion stories can be joyful. They can be painful. They can uh, quite a, a range of human experience. And then I also talk, the other theme is what I call secular grace. And this is idea of, uh, you know, what I really loved about Christianity was this concept of grace, of loving unconditionally, accepting people. And I realized after my deconversion that that is kind of a human need. And there's nothing necessarily supernatural necessary in that process and that I could be that person for other people and I can encourage others to act out that kind of secular grace as well. I was just going to say, you're very graceful. Like I'm amazed or great gracious. I'm just like, this is what we all should be like. I just, I love it. So sorry, go ahead. I also start each of my podcasts saying I'm trying to be the gracefulness. And I, I right. want to make clear that I never think of myself as being particularly gracious. That is the aspiration of what I'm trying to accomplish and point other people to as well. So, and I'll just wrap up the 30 second thing that's turning into a lot longer is uh, the last uh, theme is what I call an honesty contest. What I found when I went through my deconversion is the first contact with atheism or the secular world in general tends to be very debate oriented, very aggressive. (laughs) And I wanted to say, hey, that's not what I'm doing here. You know, I want to just let's have let's be vulnerable with one another. Let's talk. If you're a believer, that's great. Let's chat about it. And so really, that's what I'm hoping that you and I can do here. Yeah. Awesome. And we had a great chat yesterday. I mean, we talked for like an hour and I was like, I feel like I already know. Like, I feel like we could be friends. Absolutely. We are friends. (laughs) Yes. You know, this is the fun thing about the internet is that we can connect with people around the world. But the sad thing is that I would love all of my people around the world. I just wish they were closer so we could meet up for coffee. (laughs) Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. But anyways. I like to say every once in a while, the internet is a really good place to be. (laughs) Not always, (laughs) but every once in a while. (laughs) Yeah, good and bad with pretty much everything, I think, right? So I actually first wanted to start out and hear your story because you were a Christian. Yes. And I wanted to hear your story of you started deconstructing. 
which for people who don't know, deconstructing is more like doubting. Sure. Yeah. Or just kind of questioning. And then yeah, I'll give you some technical definitions in a second. Okay, yes. perfect. <laughs> and then your story to deconverting to becoming an atheist. Yes, absolutely. The beginning of the story is hard to convey in that if, you know, if you're a believer and you're listening to this, you're going to be skeptical of my story and, and that's okay. That's fine. In what we hear, a lot of us who have gone through this process, what we hear from believers in our lives is, well, maybe you weren't really a Christian. <laughs> so you were never a Calvinist. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for people who don't know, Calvinism is like, uh, there's like five points, but one of them is once saved, always saved. So right. if you're not a Christian, you never work. Exactly. And, and I appreciate that skepticism. I understand it. So, but in order to tell my story, I have to convey how deeply I believed. And a simple way of telling that story is a story about my mom. So my mom was a drug and alcohol addict. She had an epiphany when I was 17 years old. Uh, Jesus told her to, to, to she, was, she could live or die. This is your choice. And day she was sober and the next day she was sober and she came to me and she said, David, you might want to look into this. And she eventually bought me my first Bible, which I read through <laughs> on my own for about a year before I really stepped foot in a church. I got to church and I was 19 about that time. And they didn't know what to do with me. So they were like, here, volunteer for the, the youth group. So it turned out not everyone in church had read their Bibles. So I was almost immediately thrust into preaching and uh, was decent at that. Had a wonderful youth pastor who I really have fond memories. I love this guy who just said, you know what, David, you could do this. You could go to college and, and do be a, a pastor or a preacher. And that was kind of the first I don't know, adult other than my, my family that had said, you know, you can do something with your life. And I did. I went to Bible college. I, it turned out that although I was a terrible student in high school, I loved education and I thrived. I had a beloved theology professor there who I really connected with. And he really grounded grace. So grace was what brought me to Christianity. This idea of your whitewashed tombs, you know, your you're beautiful on the outside and dirty on the inside. That's like, I felt that I got, I understood that hypocrisy and I wanted to be authentically changed and I wanted to experience that grace. And I, when I got to college, I had the, the theology to kind of hang that, what was kind of emotional framework into theology. And I just, I loved it. I ate it up. And so I used to call myself a grace junkie. <laughs> and my perspective on the church was that they just didn't understand grace well enough. So my entire ministry was about teaching grace. Fast forward 20 years, you know, I lived as a Christian for most of my adult life. And I began to just allow myself to read non-Christians. Basically, I opened up the bubble just slightly, <laughs> right? Which was slightly dangerous. And a lot of believers think, well, you were hurt by the church or, or you were reading Hitchens and Dawkins or, you know, you were doing all these wrong things and that's why you deconverted. And really, it was a very long, slow process and a couple of things that might surprise you that affected this. One was reading apologists. So in particular, going through the 2000s-ish. The resurgent, like the, the amount of apologists that came. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the, the term. Anyway, I started to read these and I found that, you know, I already believe these things by faith, 
But as I'm reading this argument, there are flaws in the argument, Mm. right? So I accept the conclusion, but the argument isn't sound. And that bothered me. (laughs) Are you talking about the Kalam cosmological argument? Uh, Well, that is one of the things, yes. Intelligent design. So I had read a number of books on intelligent design. And again, I want to make it super clear here. One of my favorites was Privileged Planet, which is a very science-heavy apologetics book, right? And again, I was entirely convinced by the, of the conclusion, mm-hmm. by faith. But I started to notice that the argument wasn't quite right. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was I, I did another, yet another, probably about the fifth or sixth time in my lifetime, read through the Bible. So I read through the Bible in the year. And for whatever reason, my, what I like to say are my grace colored glasses were off. <laughs> and I mean, you know, how many people have read through the entirety of numbers and the entirety of Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Isaiah? And if you read every verse in order, there are some dark bits in there, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, my wife started to notice that in, in the evening after I had read that I was kind of tense and angry and, and she's like, well, why, why are you feeling this way? And, you know, only on hindsight do I realize that I was, I was kind of reading it for the first time without making excuses. What does it actually say? And that bothered me, right? And so, and then the other thing I want to make clear is that this is a, over a long period of time, my friend Matthew Taylor says, I suddenly realized that I no longer believed. The suddenly describes my recognition, not the process. So the process was years and years in the making. The moment in time where I thought, I don't believe anymore was very sudden and shocking and, oh no, what am I going to do? How am I going to tell my family? How am I going to tell my wife who is still very much a believer? I've heard from a variety of people, like there's some people that when they come through deconversion, they feel free. And then other people, it's like, I guess either way, you lose something because this is a whole other identity that you just thought. And also a community, because when you're a Christian and you have if you have a good church and community of people, you lose a lot of that. So did you feel like you were losing your identity in a way? Or like, how did that, you must have had had a bunch of different emotions all all at once. That is certainly very common. I, one, uh, so uh, the reason I did the podcast was that this process is very lonely. Even if you're, so before let's, so I I mentioned earlier some definitions. So I tend to define deconstruction as becoming less fundamentalist. So maybe you begin to question the inerrancy of scripture, or you begin to question a young earth creation or, you know, any particular doctrine where you feel like, hmm, I'm not so certain that there's enough evidence for that. Right. Right. And, or you have an LGBTQ friend and you think, you know, I'm not certain the Bible is hundred percent correct on this. Right. So I use that as kind of the generic reevaluating what is literally true, what is metaphorically true, and what is maybe not true at all, right? Deconversion, I define as the end game of deconstruction, of saying some point, again, that suddenly realize something about yourself, I no longer believe. So this is kind of a whole nother level of (laughs) experience. So, but when you're going through that, even just that deconstruction phase, so before you hit that deconversion threshold, who do you talk to, right? If you go to your pastor, they're going to send you some apologetics books or, <laughs> or, you know, they might not be happy with you. And, and if you happen to be in leadership, if you're a youth leader or you're a lay leader or in the worship band or something, 
you can't really express real doubt. You're allowed to have the dark night of the soul, but only for so long. <laughs> and only a certain amount. You can doubt a little exactly. bit, but you can't go this far. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you are very much expected to come to deeper faith at the end of that process. So, so what happens to you if through the dark night of the soul, you come to less faith? And it's the, my friend, Captain Cassidy uses the analogy of a pool of water and representing your faith. And little things start to drain that pool. And some things pour back in, right? Worship does, reading the Bible does maybe. But at some point you find that the pool is empty. (laughs) And then what do you do? So my point here is that it's an incredibly lonely process. And only other people who have gone through that really understand. So even my friends who were secular, not maybe atheists, but just not religious in any way, didn't quite get it. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting, David. <laughs> but no, wait, I had this transformation, you know. So this was a long way of saying what I recognized was we're in this time of what the Pew Research calls the, the nuns, N-E-S, the people that mark none of the above as far as religious affiliation. And this is the fastest growing, quote unquote, religious group in the United States. So We are legion for one thing. Now, not all of those people will fully deconvert, but they are in some form of questioning and they don't find traditional religion, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, what have you, useful anymore, right? So there are a ton of people out there. And if they feel even a modicum of the loneliness that I felt, I want to do something. I want to reach out to them. And so this was this idea of secular grace, right? Like to say to people who are doubting, you're not alone. Many of us have gone through this and there's a community out there. There's the, the ex-evangelicals are a kind of more of the millennial age group and they represent a broad range of belief systems from atheists to liberal theologically Christian to full-blown conservative theologically Christian, mm-hmm. but just rejecting some of that deep fundamentalism, right? Right. And my point just to say is that you don't have to go through this process alone. And that was deeply important to me. So that became an identity for me very, very quickly. And I'm just kind of pathologically independent. <laughs> this is a deep character flaw of mine. So, <laughs> so, you know, as soon as I had that sudden realization of I no longer believe, I began to look at what is it that I do believe? And I came to the conclusion, I believe in people. And one way of expressing that is something called humanism. And humanism just says, you know, the thing we all share, regardless if you grew up in a country that is Christian, Muslim, or Jewish, is our humanity. And me as saying that I'm an atheist kind of just barely tells you anything about me. But saying that I'm a humanist is kind of important. It means that I care about people. And if you're a believer and you care about people and we want to go do good with it together, I'm all for that. I remember hearing the term secular humanist and it was always like dripping with this anger, secular humanist. But when I Google humanism, it's not being religious, being secular. Aren't we all just supposed to be humanists in a way? Shouldn't we all just care about people? Isn't that kind of the point? Absolutely. Be a religious humanist? (laughs) No, no, that's absolutely a real term. And in fact, if you look at kind of right prior, like church history, right prior to the fundamentalist break, (laughs) Mm-hmm. The focus of Christians during that time period, so late 1800s, early 1900s, was feeding the poor, was visiting those in prison. It was religious humanism. And I would argue that Jesus is a humanist in yep. the sense of 
people are more important, right? So absolutely, I reflectively, uh, retroactively, I realized that I was a religious humanist. It was the humanism within the teachings of Jesus that drew me to him. And now I'm a secular humanist. So my metaphysics are different, but my focus on human beings and people is the same. What you're mentioning there is, you know, that bias against humanists and because it's dangerous, right? If you start saying, hey, we can go love people together, <laughs> that's a dangerous <laughs> message. It kind of starts to eat into, uh, particularly from a fundamentalist point of view, that fear-driven, enforced belief systems. I grew up in the Christian school and then I went to a secular high school and I got to meet people who weren't Christian and it was, yes. whoa, this is the, what people are like. I had no idea really. And a lot of my friends grew up Catholic, but they weren't really going to church anymore. So they're like, well, what kind of Christian are you? And I'm like, Protestant. We're the other. It was so hard to explain because we weren't yeah. Catholic. We grew up right. believing like Catholics are not like us. You know, there was such a divide here. Yeah. But it was so confusing. And so my dad was like, well, just say we're fundamentalist Christians, which we then used until September 11th right. when fundamental meant like extreme religious people who do horrible things. Right. And then it was like, okay, what are we called? I guess it's evangelical, although I guess all along it was evangelical. I yeah. don't even understand these terms. Do you happen to have a definition of fundamentalist conservative Christianity? I get all confused about this. I'm not good at <laughs> defining things. I don't know if you have or if you don't, it's fine too. Uh, you know, particularly in the last six years, not even that, really all the way back to the Bush administration. So 2000, the term evangelical became almost a political word. And yet, uh, you know, I was in Bible college in the 90s and, and we referred to ourselves as evangelicals, that kind of Bible college level. But at the church level, many people would not have known what that term meant. In general, it means a focus on the inerrancy of scripture, the, both the humanity and divinity of Christ, a focus on the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and salvation through Jesus alone. I mean, that's kind of the simplest explanation of what evangelical is. We could get into the weeds of, are there some small differences between historical fundamentalism and evangelicalism? Yeah, maybe. But they're almost synonymous. One just has a little more negative connotation. And so people reject the fundamentalist uh, uh, moniker. Keep in mind, you've just asked the atheist this question. So I'm sure the believers <laughs> are jumping up and down. You who are listening, going, you're wrong, you're wrong. That's fine. Uh, whatever definition that you have is fine. <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw the movie Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce. I don't believe I have. Yohan Griffith, he plays William Wilberforce. Okay. And... There was, so, you know, Wilberforce, right? He fought against slavery. Vaguely. Yeah, I want to oh, pretend okay. that I know I love the him. exact story. So, yeah. uh, he was a member of parliament. He fought against slavery and like years and years and years and years, of course. Right, okay. Uh, but he finally got it abolished right before he died. So in the movie, it shows there's a group of evangelicals who I think they were like Puritans or whatever. They came and they were like trying to get him to, when he first started fighting against slavery uh, and they came to him and said we need your help and they were kind of that's I think where maybe the term comes from but of course I don't know my history but I remember in those days it meant I mean it meant something different than obviously now when you've got a whole bunch of different things like Christian nationalism and 
like it, politics has really become a huge thing, part of it. And it's become this different thing that really a lot of us don't want to be associated with. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated, yes, right? There's yes, so much yes. involved in all of this and, and what people think it means, what it should mean, right. what I might think it means, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. it's very interesting. But I kind of wanted to know, there's a lot of misconceptions that theists have about atheists. Yes. <laughs> Can you explain some misconceptions? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the number one thing is that they're kind of the myth that Christians tell themselves about atheists is that we are immoral <laughs> <laughs> or that we have no basis for our morality. And I think the number one surprising thing for me was my morality barely changed. So the day before I had this kind of realization and the day after, I was the same person. As I grew in my humanism, it, it kind of the shackles of who I could show care and love for opened up, right? I no longer felt any hesitation for caring for the LGBT community or people of other faiths or what have you. There was no sense of, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> it's like, is this person a human being? Yes, they are. Okay, I can love that person. So in some ways it made, I feel, it made me more moral person. But this is one of those things where I find really fascinating. The From an apologetic point of view, the apologist will say, well, the humanist has no basis for their morality. Right. From my perspective, we're all human beings and we are all working out our morality collectively together. And so from my perspective, the Christian and the humanist are doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what we're arguing over is a philosophical minutia that really doesn't affect the everyday life. So if you, again, if you care about people and I care about people, we should just go about caring for people and forget who, why or how we justify that for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Try to think. If you want help, I have one. Sure. Yeah, please. Yes. Uh, or at least one thing I always was, we thought atheists are all angry. Yeah. And scary. Like we kind of Richard Dawkins, I think was the first one. Yeah. He seemed really angry at all Christians. And we just thought, if Dawkins get his way, we won't be able to share, you know, have our faith and he's going to make it us all atheists. And yeah, that's kind of how the fear of, but we thought they were all angry. And I was totally scared to come across any atheists because I was like, they're going to be angry at me. And I don't know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and again, I feel like we've kind of gone in these waves, right? So 20th century atheism was really more ag agnosticism. And you have people like, Robert Ingersoll and, and various other people. And, and they were just really making space for you could be a doubter and still be an American, right? Or be a North American, a Canadian, what have you. And then so in 2001, we have the 9-11 events and there's this immediate reaction to that. And, that right. and, and you get kind of a very hostile take from quote unquote, the four horsemen. So that's Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, and Dennett. And what you see from that is then a number of atheist podcasts, blogs, personalities, that kind of thing that are very, again, debate oriented. And so I look at that 2000s to early 2010s as a pretty aggressive time in atheism. So the stereotype is not entirely unwarranted. So I'm going to grant you that. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things literally right as I was deconverting was an article by Greta Christina, 
uh, who is an atheist blogger. And she wrote a blog post about why atheists are angry. And she talked about the biases against atheism and some of the egregious uses of faith to justify terrible behavior and just listed, you know, I don't know, 10 things. And I realized as I read that, I agreed with every single one of them. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> right. So yeah. I understand why she would feel that way. And I realized that I felt that way. <laughs> so there is some justification for some of, of that anger. One of the things that I have to do is, you know, I have people on my podcast that tell horrifying stories. Uh, you know, they grew up as children, you know, a level of indoctrination that's just painful. They suffer through their, you know, going through puberty, discovering their sexuality. And now they're adults and they have this kind of trailing trauma from all of that. And my heart is breaking for these people and I have to keep in check the anger that I might feel. So all that to say, however, what I think is this new wave that I feel like I'm a part of is people who became atheists or were atheists all their life and realized that that's really not very much. That's not a lot to go on. The idea of an atheist community is kind of a, a misnomer because there's nothing that ties you together other than one thing, right? A lack of a belief in, in God. But having something positive, what I do believe in, you know, humanism, secular grace, I believe in people, focusing on that from a secular perspective is, I think, this next wave that I'm hopeful about and what I'm trying to encourage. And that is a recognition that virtually everyone I love in my life is a believer. And I have a choice. Do I want to burn those bridges and walk away with, in a blaze of glory? Or do I care about those relationships? And what my entire life philosophy is, is that relationships are what give us meaning in life. And so I'm actively cultivating those relationships with the believers in my life. And that requires that I not just show, but have respect. I understand their human dignity, their intelligence, and their faith. So one of the things I talk about with my wife, who is very much a believer, is I love her for who she is, and that entails what she believes, uh, right? I love her not because of what she believes, but that's a part of her. And so that's included in the package, and I accept her for who she is. That was one thing. So Sean McDowell had a conversation with Drew from Genetically Modified Skeptic. Mm -hmm. And Drew said when he was deconverting, from his faith, he didn't come out for about a year. He was scared because his his family were very Christian yeah. and but and some people would use apologetics on him. Others would they don't know what to do with him. So they're like, okay, we're not friends anymore. But he said his friend just said, that's it. And he goes, Yeah. And he goes, I love you for you, not because you're a Christian or right. you're an atheist. I just love you for you. And he was saying to Sean, because Sean was like, what can Christian parents, what would be a good reaction for them? So Drew was just like, just say, I love you no matter what, because you have kids who come out as LGBTQ. You have kids who come out as atheists to their parents. It's scary in a Christian conservative thing. I was, I was scared. I didn't go to church for about a year or so. And I got yelled at by somebody. It was just like, yeah. Okay. I mean, what? Yeah. It's scary to kind of even do that. I can't imagine yeah. becoming an atheist or anything else, right? So. Yeah. 
one of the things that I say is that when you, you know, if you're going through a deconstruction process and you do tell someone or a deconversion, you will find who your real friends are. So I'm a very lucky person. Uh, Virtually everyone in my life has been, I wouldn't say necessarily that they understood, but they were very accepting, right? That they, they love me for who I am. And the people who didn't, it's like, okay, I'm moving on. (laughs) Right. Right. So it can be scary. And, and, I also want to acknowledge, you know, I'm, I think I'm in a very privileged position. Although I did ministry earlier in my life, I have a you know secular job. I didn't have my finances weren't dependent upon that, so I had a relatively easy time of coming out. And some people don't, right? Some people like pastors. That's all pastors. They- I worship leaders. I've got friends who work in tertiary, you know, roles like tech roles in the church, what have you, and that is very very challenging for them not only their friends and family, but then their livelihood as well. For sure, for sure. Another thing I just want to say on the angry thing, I get it. And like I told you, I mean, I've been questioning a lot of the fundamentalist stuff I grew up with. And I I mean, it's it's so fascinating, the internet, (laughs) like YouTube and, and podcasts. I've been learning so much about things. And when I hear stories, especially of survivors of spiritual abuse, sexual Mm -hmm. abuse, physical abuse within the church, and how they don't, a lot of it is just like, well, we're going to put them aside and we're, we're still going to forgive these people and put them back in their places of leadership or whatever. A lot of stuff is just like, this is toxic. I can't believe that this is what we've made Christianity to be. And I told you, I was listening to this podcast called Gangster Capitalism. In mm-hmm. three, they went through Jerry Falwell Jr. and Liberty University and a lot of the stuff that goes on there. And I was enraged with every episode that came out. I'm like, you got to stop bringing these out because I keep getting angry. So I can understand that. And I couldn't really, certain Christians, there's some I can can share these things with. And others, it's like, why do you always want to pick on the Christians? And it's like, because we need to be picked on. Honestly, I love, okay, I I wasn't allowed to watch South Park way back in the (laughs) day. Yes. But over the last, I don't know, five years, it came on. TV. I started watching it and they make fun of everything. But especially there was one where Cartman was like, he started a Christian rock band. And it was just mm-hmm. so funny because I'm like, that's what we do. Like, that's <laughs> <laughs> the picture and everything. And the, you know, he's like, just Jesus. And he's worshiping with his hands. And I was like, well, yeah, it's funny. But we have to learn to, first of all, see what people are saying about us. There's a truth in what they're saying. I mean, we're a stereotype or they're making fun of us for a reason. So maybe instead of being offended by that all the time, we should look back and go, hmm, what are we doing that's making people, maybe we should change something, but. Right. Can I make just a couple of points here? Yes, I, uh, one, I just want to make clear, because I know, you, you know, if you've got a believing apologist who's listening, they, it's easy to kind of attack the Jerry Falwells of the world. And I just want to make super clear that I deconverted and many of the people that I interviewed deconvert because of the best versions of Christianity are still insufficient for us. Just to make that one point. And then secondly, that even within the not necessarily Jerry Falwell, which is almost a cartoonish version <laughs> of evangelicalism, right? But let's, <laughs> let's look at the good versions of evangelicalism. There are areas for improvement and being willing to error correct, to acknowledge where abuse has taken place and to change is vitally important. So someone like yourself, who could be that voice inside to say, hey, we need to do better. That's really, really important. So I just really encourage you to continue to have those conversations because they're very important. Thank you. 
Yes. I mean, with anything we can all do better. And I think the church is, it needs to be shaken up. And I think it is right now with a lot of the questioning and just a lot of stuff. And I don't think that's necessarily bad. Right, right. Things are shaken up for a reason. So you and I have mentioned the term apologetics. And Mm -hmm. for people who don't know, apologetics is giving a reason or defense of the faith. So I first heard about apologetics in like 2005, I think, with Ravi Zacharias. And I attended a lot of his conferences. And I thought it was super exciting because it was finally like, oh, we have a reason for our faith rather than just blindly believing it. And I was really caught up in a lot of that stuff. And I thought it was effective, to be honest, although I wasn't very good at it. I And also I would sound very condescending and self-righteous because I'm like, I'm actually sounding smart now and I can maybe get some, you know, my friend who might not know, like I'm just at least winning something. Like, you know, I know in my own heart, I was very condescending. But I found it interesting in your podcast when you you were saying and you were talking to Brian Blaze about apologetics and how you're not a fan. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. So (laughs) can you maybe give a kind of talk about why apologetics for you wasn't really that helpful? Yeah. And first of all, I'll just apologize to the audience because we're getting into the weeds here. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, so either you're <laughs> familiar with this topic or you're not. But so number one, just to say that apologetics was a part of my deconversion because I recognized I was convinced of the conclusion by faith, but I started to see the flaws in the arguments. So if the arguments were wrong, or not wrong, but incomplete or not always sound, or they overstated the evidence. Why? (laughs) Why was that happening? And why was it that even as a believer, when I believed, I was seeing these problems? Now, uh, fast forward to today, a part of the issue is that many of the apologetic arguments have refutations. And uh, rather than acknowledging those refutations, it's kind of papered over and yes, but let's get to the conclusion. The goal of the apologist is to convince the believer. The role of the apologist doesn't convince the skeptic. So when I have just the tiniest modicum of skepticism, and here I want to clarify, I don't mean cynicism. I don't mean angrily rejecting something. I mean, just good critical thinking. I know you're a fan of critical thinking. When I apply that to apologetic arguments, they tend to fall apart. So when they are overstated, when the confidence level, the way they are presented is overstating the evidence, That frustrates me quite a bit. (laughs) And now we could fall into a deep, well, uh, philosophical argument here. There's analytic philosophers on both sides that, you know, will debate this to the end of time. I just, I don't personally find that terribly interesting. Uh, The point I want to make is that apologetics convinces believers. It's what believers find convincing. (laughs) And as a non-believer, outside the bubble, as like I like to say... (laughs) The flaws in those arguments are relatively obvious, and there's no way for me to show you do that without it's kind of an experiential thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could go through any of your favorite arguments if you want, and I could try to pinpoint maybe where they fall off the rails. Oh man, see, I loved listening to them, but I remember talk. I do you know Michael Ramston? He's part of the Zacharias Trust in Oxford. Yeah, I'm not oh. specifically familiar, but yeah, I met him at a conference once, and I just said, "Can I have your brain?" <laughs> Well, I also had a lot of bad anxiety, which I've realized over the years. Like, I just thought I was stupid, but anxiety will make your, you just seize up and you can't really take in things and learn that well. But he goes, no, you have, like, you can learn these things. You have your own brain. I was just like, 
no, I can't. <laughs> yeah. For me, it was like moral relativism. But nobody really believes in moral relativism anymore, like, right? As far as I know. So again, it's a huge philosophical topic, as I'm sure you know. And we could, almost any answer I give here will just spark further debate from other apologists. But let me just say it this way. If you look at history, the most dangerous and destructive moments in history are when a particular group of people say they know what the objective truth is and you need to understand that truth the way they do. Mm -hmm. So let me flip it on its head. If an objective truth exists, how do we know what that is? And if someone is telling you they are the one and only group of people who know what that objective truth is, you should run away screaming. <laughs> right? So I have a particular opinion on what's called moral realism, whether an objective truth exists. Ontologically is the philosophical word. But really, that's almost irrelevant. My point is more epistemic. Sorry, we're using all kinds of uh, philosophical words. But how do we know? You know, if I'm a Catholic Christian, how do I know that the Catholic interpretation of scripture is correct. If I'm an evangelical Christian, how do I know the evangelical one is correct? And if both of those groups disagree, how do you work that out? Now, me as a, as a secular humanist, I believe that they are mistaken. I believe that I was mistaken <laughs> and I've had a change of mind. And so, but one of the thing that I don't do is say, I know the moral truth and you must do what I say. I, I am the sole prophet of what the truth is, what the moral truth is. And so I personally think that anyone who expresses that is someone to be uh, run away from at high speed. <laughs> well, and that's the thing I think it's because how we grew up is very black and white. Yeah. And it was just either this or this. And then you get into these more gray areas and it's just... They never warned us that the world is more complicated than just black or white. And right. so you come across all these different scenarios and, and these different things. And you're like, oh, I don't know. I did have a friend who was going through a, or she was kind of coming out of being a Christian. And, and she goes, but everyone has their different interpretations. How do you know which one is like, oh, good question. Because we all have these rose colored glasses that we, we bring to the world, our own viewpoint. And right. I've. With certain, even with scripture, you know, people will have their different theological viewpoints and, well, they have scripture for this one and then they have scripture for this one. And you're like, oh, I don't know, like how we, we were always like, it has to be this way because we're Calvinists. And then the Arminians are like, no, we have this. And it's like, well, right. blah, I don't let that hurts. Stuff hurts my brain. <laughs> Do you happen to have a favorite apologist? One that you think is pretty, <laughs> that you kind of think is, oh yeah, this person's pretty yeah. cool or... You know, we we chatted about this uh, yesterday. I'll give you two names that I think are decent. Okay. <laughs> I want to be 100% clear that I still don't find their arguments convincing, uh, but, I, but they're good human beings, right? So Randall Rouser is one. He's written a number of books, one of which was targeted to the church called Is the Atheist My Neighbor? And so his, the entire, the point of that particular book is a lot of Christians will say, well, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so <laughs> yeah. atheist, you're a fool. And he really makes a compelling argument that doesn't apply to the atheist. It's the context is wrong and, and that the church should probably be a little more graceful towards the atheist. So. Don't say that. <laughs> Don't say that to people. Yeah. So <laughs> I had Randall on the podcast. My criticism of Randall is that I, you know, asked a handful of pretty straightforward questions and got very cagey 
uh, run around answers. So I still don't find the ultimate argument that he's trying to make compelling, but uh, good person. He gives you the benefit of the doubt. It's what's called steel manning, trying to steel man the other person's argument rather than the opposite of what's called straw manning, making the, the simplest thing you can knock down, actually seeing the strength of that argument. And then the other one is uh, somebody that you and I have just been chatting about is John Marriott of Biola University. He's written a couple of books about deconversion. I'm a little more happy with his first book, particularly the first chapter of his first book, which is called A Recipe for Disaster, that is very, very empathetic about deconverts. I have some criticisms as he moves on in his second book is a little less empathetic, a little less graceful, but it is from the Christian perspective attempting to describe why people deconvert. I think it misses the boat. I think Christians are looking for easy answers to why people deconvert. And they often show that they've never spoken to a deconvert. I didn't (laughs) put John necessarily in this context, but like a lot of the apologetic hot takes of deconversions happened because of X shows me they've never actually spoken to someone who has deconverted. <laughs> and once again, it's complicated. We, we want the simple answer. We want this, exactly, this, this. Exactly, yeah. So those two guys, there are many others, I'm sure. So again, it's a hard question for me to answer because at the end of the day, I feel like the arguments are flawed in some deeply fundamental ways, but they are good human beings, right? They are treating atheists or deconverts with respect and seeing the humanity in atheists and not ad hominem attacking people. Although John Marriott said he's not really an apologist. He says that. (laughs) (laughs) But he sort of is in a way. (laughs) This is an apologetics book, right? And again, from my perspective, apologetics is convincing those who already believe. Right. So is it more like confirmation bias kind of? It absolutely is. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's true. So that sounds really snarky. Let me try to say, you know, I I said to this, (laughs) to you yesterday. I think it's really important for me to get across here that I am not pointing the finger at you believers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm saying what I used to be deeply convinced by, the apologetics I was consuming, the reading of scripture, my graceful interpretation of scripture. I came to understand that I was mistaken, that the apologetic arguments that I found profoundly convincing started to no longer be convincing. I was mistaken. So I don't know what your experience is or what the listener's experience is. Maybe they're right. I don't know. I'm willing to be wrong. I just now on this side of of things, I need evidence, right? Mm -hmm. And given enough evidence, I would change my mind. And one description of deconversion is the slow, imperceptible raising of one's standard of evidence so that what used to be acceptable no longer is acceptable. And that changes what you're convinced by. Uh, One last point. I often say that it's, I don't want to get into a free will argument, but it's almost like you don't have control over this, right? I am either convinced by something or I'm not. And I used to be deeply, profoundly, life-alteringly convinced until I wasn't. Right. Which is like you said, it's a slow thing. And then all of a sudden you realize you're not convinced enough. Yeah. And yeah, you've mentioned your, your wife is still a Christian. Yes. And on your podcast, you do talk about being unequally yoked, which in the Bible, it says, do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. And I, how we grew up, it was like, you have to marry a Christian. If they become atheists or whatever, you have a right to divorce and all this, all this crazy fun stuff. But that must be 
Although in all honesty, I, I've seen enough people get married to Christians. Right. Who are not really actually good people, whether they're actually Christian or not. Maybe they're just in the church, but, and they have terrible marriages and that person's abusive. And I'm like, I'd rather, I'd rather marry a good person who, even if they're not a Christian. Yeah. So that must be, especially when you first told your wife you were atheists, that must have been super tough. But you guys talk about how you love each other. And I think that's so beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about how you told her that you were atheist? First, I just have to say, my wife, Michelle, is one of those amazing people who it utterly crushed her. She was devastated. But over time, she was able to see that she still loved me and that I still loved her and that we could do something new, which I will get to here in just a second. But yeah, I had that sudden realization. And contrary to what you might think, you know, I really hadn't read much atheists other than that Greta Christina article. So I went on, you know, a binge. I went and read, I read Dawkins, I read Hitchens, I read those guys. But again, kind of convinced, it was, it was something I already, it's not like they convinced me, right? I already was acknowledging that. And in fact, I was looking for more humanist authors and I didn't know it. I later came to know some, I'll give you some book recommendations at the end, maybe. So I had about a three month period of time where I was like, I've got to tell Michelle, how am I going to do that? And I just, I was terrified. And like, she had every right to divorce me, right? Like explicitly our marriage was based on our mutual faith. And I thought the scariest thing that I have ever done in my life was, was tell her. And it was because I was deathly afraid of losing her. I was we were on vacation. I remember it very distinctly. It's going to be ingrained in my mind forever. I was sweating profusely (laughs) and I kind of soft pedaled it a bit. I was like, I'm having doubts. (laughs) And uh, we cried. It took weeks of us occasionally having these conversations and and weeping tears. And uh, we happened to have our anniversary about a month later. And that was awkward and, and painful. And, but again, my wife is amazing. She has a psychology background. And she had read a book that talked about marriage in general, that human beings grow. Uh, if you're, you've been married for a long time, you're a different human being than when you first got married. And this idea of a second marriage to the same person without ever having divorced. And you know that basically we knew that we loved each other and that this does make it harder. I'm not going to lie to you. It is harder, but that we care about each other enough to make it work. So if I was advising somebody who is single, I would say, absolutely. It's probably going to be a whole lot easier to have a relationship with someone who has at least relatively similar faith or lack thereof or politics even, right? A Democrat and a Republican oh, would be I just can't as hard these days. <laughs> But if you go through the deconstruction, deconversion process, one of the steps you need to make is what relationships are important to me that I want to keep? And I might have to be the bigger person, right? And particularly in, if you're the, the child and your parents are the believers, they may not handle it well. <laughs> and, uh, and you might have to be the bigger person and love them through that process. Mm. Again, I was incredibly lucky with Michelle. We loved each other through the process. And, you know, it's not always easy. It's like, I, I won't pretend, but uh, we are making it work so far. Awesome. I love that. And I have heard, and you, you had, you've had some people on who are, mostly it's women who are Christian and their husbands are atheists, right? 
I don't know if that's true, but yeah, I mean, it depends. Uh, yeah, that's maybe common, but. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I think it's amazing. I mean, it's got to be even more difficult, but I think that's amazing that there's still, you know, you still stay together and yeah. there's other things and the love you guys have for each other. I just think that's beautiful. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else you wanted to add? I'll just say again, you know, for anybody who happens to be listening, I'm not interested in making more atheists. I sometimes joke. And in fact, I did with my conversation with Randall Rouser. I'm a doubt apologist, (laughs) Uh, right? If you're doubting, I think doubt is a healthy process. You may doubt and then come out the other end, a dedicated Christian and more power to you. That'd be wonderful. What I do want to do is provide cover for doubters. If you're doubting or if you're going through a deconstruction process and you don't have a lot of people in your life where you can talk to them, you can reach out to me. There is a community out there. There's lots of people who have gone through this and you don't have to do it alone. So the podcast is a good way to start, Graceful Atheist, uh, available everywhere. And then you can also write me. The best way to get in touch with me is, is email. Uh, I'm old school <laughs> and old in general. <laughs> GracefulAtheist at gmail.com. And your website, your blog is GracefulAtheist.com. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's how I found you. I was Googling ex-Christian turned atheist. I was uh, like, yeah. oh, where do I find this person? And then your blog came up and I was like, yay. <laughs> You are my target audience, Stephanie. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad that uh, you found it. And I appreciate that your willingness to have this conversation. And I respect you. I can feel that you're showing me respect as well. And I think these conversations need to happen with more people. We can grow to, to understand one another in a much deeper and more important way. Yeah, I think listening to different viewpoints. I mean, there are some people who will be like, atheism, Stephanie, what's going on? I think it's important because I have learned so much listening to your podcast, which is just amazing. I like to watch different atheist YouTubers, progressive Christians. It's so interesting and good to hear different points of view because how we were, it was always like, no, it's this kind of news that you have to follow. And then you're so ingrained in that you're not getting a different perspective. And honestly, a lot of times, even if you're conservative or liberal, either way, you need to kind of find your own information in the middle because they're, (laughs) it's funny, my dad will say, well, you're listening to the evil liberal media. I'm like, (laughs) but you're listening to the conservative media. And how do you know that that's right? Don't tell him about our conversation. He's not. Oh my gosh. I, he doesn't listen to this, thankfully, because I do say a lot of stuff about my background. Yeah. I think he's scared. He's scared, but I'm a a grown up, you know, (laughs) I can learn my own things. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways. Well, thank you so much, David. This was so much fun chatting with you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. Stephanie's Corner. Stephanie's Corner. Stephanie's Corner. Corner. (laughs) On the Graceful Atheist podcast, David does his a little segment at the end where he talks about his thoughts on the episode. So I'm a little bit stealing that, but I also had a friend, JR, who suggested I do Stephanie's Corner at the end. So I'm stealing from two people. Um, (laughs) I do apologize. When listening back, I realize I talk so much. And sometimes I had a friend who said, but it's a conversation. So you are supposed to talk. But I kind of think of it also more as like a, I'm interviewing somebody. So then I think I shouldn't talk so much. So Let me know. Do I talk too much? Maybe it depends on the episode. I don't know. But 
I should have let David talk more because he's much smarter than me, more well-read, and he was my guest. So, doy, I I feel kind of bad. And I say like too much. Uh, I even had to cut a lot of that out. <laughs> now, I get called out sometimes for doing these voices. When there's somebody who's angry, uh, I do this like rah, 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 rah voice. If somebody is naggy, I do this like, well, you need to do it like this voice. And I don't honestly know that I'm doing it. It just is automatic for me. I've been doing it my whole life and I don't intend to offend anybody. I don't mean to. And it's just because I do these silly voices and I just, I guess I have that person's idea in my head. So I didn't mean to do that. If it's offensive, I apologize. I just, it kind of automatically comes out. Now, when I said Christians need to be picked on, I'm not saying go pick on Christians. I'm just saying it's good when we're challenged. Uh, A lot of times there's things that people who grew up in the church are told to say. There's a lot of things I'm sure you've heard said. It sounds like weird, cultish even. Uh, And you're like, why why do they say that? It's kind of our vernacular. That's just the Christian ease. That's what we're told to say. So until we hear it from another perspective, it wasn't until this past year I heard different terminology that I used and how self-righteous it sounded. I was like, oh, I didn't know it sounded like that. So plus there's a lot of stuff that's crazy out there. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that people have made religious, which is really not even the whole point. And so I think it's good that when we're challenged, I think... It sucks and can be hard, and we don't always know the answer, but maybe we should stop being so defensive sometimes and look at really why are people saying this and why are they – it's not necessarily persecution. (laughs) A lot of it we kind of – we need to hear. So that's kind of all I meant. Um, I know – I also, on the other hand, I know some wonderful Christians, and like David said, the things that led him to atheism was not the bad version of Christianity. It was even the good version. So, but I get caught up in sometimes some of this aspect. And so that's why I want to talk to him about kind of the bad negative aspects of Christianity, because that's the stuff that I'm realizing and I'm angry about right now. (laughs) So, but I, my mom is one of the most loveliest, nicest people you'd ever meet. She loves God. She loves people. And my pastor, a lot of people I know are just amazing people. So Yes, I, <laughs> I'm i not saying I only know the negative side of it. I also know the amazing side of it, too. So, But it's so easy to see the negative side of everything, and so sometimes you get angry about that kind of stuff easier. <laughs> the discussion I mentioned with Sean McDowell, who's a professor at Biola University, and he's an apologist. He he has a YouTube channel, and he spoke to Drew from Gen- Genetically Modified Skeptic, who was a Christian-turned-atheist. I will put that link in the show notes, as well as the Kalam Cosmological Argument. I'll put a link to that as well, in case you were interested in knowing what that was. Once again, David, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and chat with me. I really appreciate it. I learned so much from you. And thank you for being vulnerable with your podcast, with your story, and You really do help people when they are searching. And I think I can learn so much from you. We all can. Uh, When you were talking about you're trying to be graceful, you're trying to be a graceful atheist. I want to be the graceful Christian. 
I look back, like David said, you know, you look back at things and you're like, I was wrong. There's so many things that I look back on and I think I was wrong. And I cringe at some of the things and I look back at different how I acted and what I said. And it's just, so I want to be graceful. I want to be gracious. And I think it's it's something we're all going to be. It's a lifelong journey. And it's day by day, minute by minute. And, but that's what I want to strive to. So David, I appreciate so much that this is what you put out into the world because that's, we all need a, we all need people to have grace with us and patience with us, but we also need to be that for other people. And I appreciate when people are gracious, gracious, I can't even speak. I appreciate when people are gracious with me because they've had to put up a lot of crap for me over the years. And um, yeah, the world would be a better place if we were all just more gracious and patient, had more patience with each other. I know that's a lot to ask a lot of times, but we can all strive for it anyways, right? So thank you so much. Uh, you can follow me on Stuff Up Podcast under, wait, Stuff Up underscore podcast on Instagram. And I'm switching. I'm going to be switching up my website soon. I don't know. I'm switching up a whole bunch of different things right now. It's kind of like a mess. But thank you so much for listening. Go check out David at the Graceful Atheist Podcast. And I hope you all go out there and make it a great day. Bye.